you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. If you're a guest with us, we are concluding our study of Mark's Gospel. I'm not really sure if that's sarcasm or not. I'm going to take it as praise and affirmation that we made it. So <laughs> that's right. At this rate, Nancy, only 120 more years and we can get through the whole Bible. That's right. <laughs> We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 9. Follow along with me. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us now. As we try to consider this passage, Lord, we pray that you would give us an absolute confidence in the word of God, trusting in your scripture that has been written for our good and instruction. I thank you for these friends who have gathered here this evening for the time of prayer we've had, the laughter we've been able to enjoy, uh, the privilege to be able to conclude our day, not, uh, not only with a gathering, but be able to gather for congregational worship. What a blessing. Help us now, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed that I did not say Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today before reading that passage. Because, as most of you have indicated in your Bible, this text is not in the earliest manuscripts. So, disclaimer, this is less of a sermon and more of a teaching. In most of your Bibles, you notice that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is either set off in brackets or is put in a footnote or has a footnote attached to it. If you have a study Bible, it probably has an extended discussion there on the passage for you. So this gives us a little bit of a chance to ask some questions about a discipline of biblical studies behind judgments called textual criticism and its implications for the trustworthiness and authority and usefulness of the scripture. Because when you're reading passages like this, you either just plow to the end of Mark's gospel, or you begin to ask yourself questions like, well, why is this even in here if it, they're not sure that it's in here? I mean, how could I know if it's in here? And if this isn't in here, then what else isn't in here? And 
is that attached to any of the really important things in my life and practice of Christian faith, like justification, or Jesus' resurrection from the dead, or the virgin birth? What else didn't happen in the Bible? And then you spiral, and you send emails or texts or call, which is all good, and we're happy to receive that. So we thought it'd be helpful to take some time to back up and look at the Scripture for just a moment. As we think of this, nothing I'm going to say is particularly novel. I'm uniquely reliant upon scholars more skilled than myself for this discipline. There are people who literally dedicate their entire lives to trying to understand the text, not only in the original languages, many do that, I tried to do that, but to be able to understand how we got the text that we have. And one of the things you'll see is that those scholars, many of them are very devoted to the Christian faith because they have a lot of confidence in the Bible. The Bibles that you have and are reading from this evening or following along as you're scrolling in your screen, uh, on, along with the device and looking down the screen with you. So I'm going to give us a couple general thoughts that kind of summarize why people think this isn't in Mark's gospel, and then we'll keep tracking along for just a few moments. There are actually, according to Rodney Decker in his Baker volume on the Greek New Testament, as many as potentially 10 different endings for Mark's gospel after verse 8. Three of the most well-known are the short ending of Mark that ends even before the passage that you have now, the long ending of Mark, that's what they call verses 9 through 20, and then they call the other one the long, long ending of Mark. I'm, not, I'm sure they just ran out of creativity. The text actually, as we saw last week and we'll discuss at the end of our time together this evening, flows very nicely when it stops at verse 8 of chapter 16 when it puts this dilemma upon us. Fear versus faith, and then it forces the question upon the reader, especially when we think of the way that Mark's gospel would have originally been read. We have the privilege to have a multitude of Bibles and a variety of different translations that we can read from. Some of you probably have literally shelves of Bibles at your house of all kinds of different translations, and so you just read them, and you read one chapter at a time or a paragraph at a time, but many of the early hearers of Mark's gospel would have been just that hearers. They certainly would not have been able to read because they lived in a culture where only a few of them were able to read. And if they had the privilege to read, there was only a limited amount of the manuscripts going around at that time. So they would have been hearing the gospel read. And the point is that they would have probably read, if not the entirety of Mark's gospel, large sections of Mark's gospel. And they would have been uh, pressed with the question, fear versus faith. And then finally, the style and the vocabulary of verses 9 through 20 are really not like the rest of Mark's gospel. So text critics take a step back and they begin to ask themselves questions. If all of that's true, is this really here? Now, I recognize that saying that assumes a lot of knowledge that very few, if any of you actually have right now. If you'd like some good references, I'm happy to point you some good resources. But this is a really technical field that requires a discipline in ancient languages beyond just Greek and Hebrew. And the ability to read them, and not just Greek and Hebrew and Syriac and Ugaritic and a variety of different uh, languages there, but to be able to read them in small script and handwriting so that you can begin to make reasonable judgments. So what we see that they would do, the new, uh, they would be pointing us to what we would call a reliable New Testament. I'll just give you a little bit of knowledge on the New Testament. The New Testament that we know was originally written in Greek, all of it would have been capital letters, no spaces. The first Greek New Testament printed by a printing press was in 1516 by Erasmus, and that book literally changed the world. 
like William Tyndale's English translation of the Bible. If you want to learn a lot about how the Bible changes the world, just go study the life of William Tyndale. That's a great way to use time to be able to understand how people just devoured the scriptures when they were finally able to read them in their own language. This means for about 1,500 years, the manuscripts of the biblical books were passed down to us through handwritten copies before that printing press published that Greek New Testament. That was how people had access to the actual words of the New Testament writers because they had been passed down by handwritten copies. None of the first original manuscripts are known to exist at all. We have no singular original Mark's Gospel or Matthew's Gospel or Book of Romans, which many people would say is a good thing because if we had those, we would probably worship them like idols and charge people to come and see them. So that forces us to a place of dependence, which in the Christian life is often a wonderful place to be, a place of dependence. How can I trust this book just like I trust that when I pray to an invisible God, he actually hears me? The books of the New Testament were preserved by people who were faithful, hardworking copyists. Some of these copies were written in a script called Unseals, referring to manuscripts, all capital Greek letters. Others were minuscule, referring to manuscripts with small Greek letters. A small number were called papyri because they were very early written on special paper from the papyrus plant that was prevalent in the Nile Delta. And the last group were from lectionaries, which were collections of texts reading for public worship. The abundance of the New Testament manuscripts or parts of the New Testament as compared with other manuscripts from ancient works is just absolutely staggering. So I'll give you an example here. If you go down to Westchester University and somebody's teaching ancient history, they're going to re reference a few people. They're going to reference people like Thucydides. They're going to reference people like Tacitus. When I was writing my dissertation, those are some of the early church historians. Josephus is another. They're going to reference them as if they are authoritative historians. Let's just think a little bit about what we would call authoritative for Tacitus. Tacitus' history and his annals, which were composed around AD 100, we have two copies. One from the 9th century and one from the 11th century. There are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides who lived between 460 and 400 BC. Now you take that and you look at what people call authoritative history. And they're going to say this is actually what happened. We can trust these people and cite them in major publications for academic papers. And compare that with the rest of what we have for the New Testament and how they will undermine that because of passages like this where we're just trying to be honest with you, we don't think that it's there. And it is outrageous and unbelievable how much more we have. There are 322 unsealed texts, 2,907 minuscule texts, 2,445 lectionary portions, 127 papyri for a total of about 5,800 total manuscripts. And the evidence just keeps coming. All of those handwritten copies have now been digitalized and captured so that you can search them ad nauseum online if you like to do that. You can see all of them and begin to examine them in the original languages if you would like to. That's a wonderful gift to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This helps us to see that no other ancient book, and that's Homer's Odyssey to Josephus, has anywhere near the amount of wealth and diverse preservation that the New Testament has but people would say it's authoritative. 
and they would try to undermine the New Testament because of texts like this. Now, having all of that wealth that we have creates problems for us and solutions all at the same time because they do not agree in every single way. But the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you'll find on one hand, but the more manuscripts you have, the more control you have over understanding what was actually said because you start laying them alongside each other and you begin to realize, oh, they agree, they agree, they agree, they agree, which helps you find actual discrepancies like this one. This one does not agree. Another famous text in your Bible that does not agree is John 7:53 through 8:11. Next time you're reading through John's gospel, just skip from verse 52 of chapter 7 to chapter 8, verse 12, and you will notice how much more naturally the narrative flows. And what you'll see if you follow in the study Bible is that, that that section in John's gospel was not only not there originally, it was in another place in John's gospel, and in one manuscript, it's in the gospel of Luke. So we might think this probably happened, but it certainly wasn't original to John's gospel. So as we're reading these, we have these solutions, we have these problems coming together, but we have a lot of control over the text because we begin to realize it's not like we have two manuscripts, one of Mark's that has this long ending and another of Mark's that doesn't have this long ending. And because we don't know what to do, we just throw in some brackets and confuse everybody. What we see is that we actually have lots of evidence by which we can compare and say, this was not original to the Bible. Here's the way F.F. Bruce put it about a generation ago. If the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is, in truth, remarkably small. But what is most significant about the variations, in this one in particular, is that no significant doctrine of the Christian faith is changed at all by this not being a part of the Bible, of this not being in Mark's gospel. It's a lot easier to skip this passage because it's at the end of Mark's gospel, and I would probably said, if I wouldn't have said this tonight, and I would just stopped at verse 8 on Easter, no one would have said very much because it seems very natural to end Easter with the resurrection, and you would have just assumed we moved on in a sermon series. That's a lot more complicated when you're in John's gospel. In fact, to show you how little sometimes people pay attention to that, Josh, Rebecca, and I used to attend a church of about 750, 800 people. Our pastor was preaching through John's gospel. He went from John 7.52, skipped a week, came back, went to 8.12. Nobody asked him why he skipped that passage except this guy because I had been asked to preach John 7.53 through 8.11, and I was really hoping he would say something so I could just copy it down and follow what Bill Cook said. Because when in doubt, follow along with Bill Cook. He knows more about the Bible than all of us. So we see no major doctrine is changed. So we see here... Again, Bruce saying things like the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of the historic fact of the Christian faith or any of its practices. Nothing has changed since Bruce wrote that in 1943 except the fact that now we live in a day where people like Bart Ehrman and Peter Enns, who are incredibly irresponsible with their comments, have been able to gain a large gathering and try to undermine the reliability of the New Testament as they call into question our Gospels and our Bibles by pointing to passages like this. But once again, I'll point you to another scholar. Paul Wegner says something similar to Bruce. 
It is important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small port of the text, a part of the text is in question. Of these, most variants make little difference to the meaning of any passage. And then he closes by saying this, a quote from somebody else. It is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all of these discoveries and of all of this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable word of God. So while I agree with the vast majority of scholars that Mark 16, 9 through 20 was not in the gospel of Mark, you should not begin to think, well, now what? Can I trust my Bible? That is a very natural question. In fact, I would assume that's the question that all of you are asking at the end of Mark's gospel or when you see this in John's gospel or when you start comparing particularly the 1611 KJV with some of our English translations, which is why we have an entire debate called the KJV debate, where people think, think that we have changed the Bible. On the contrary, you can find yourself grateful that in his sovereign providence, over the course of almost 2,000 years, God has so faithfully preserved his word through fallible human people, who added some portions at the end of Mark's gospel and added sections in the middle of John's and miss, missed uh, examples in other places where they would write it and skip lines, that we're able to verify where those errors are and to be able to highlight them and say this was not original. In fact, everything that I'm saying to you right now, Erasmus would have been able to say in 1516 when he published his first Greek New Testament. So then a few final questions for us. What is a preacher to do? Especially one in a church like ours where we are constantly affirming the truthfulness of the scripture. We stand up and remind ourselves that our times are better used by us gathering together and keeping our Bibles open. I chose not to preach this because of verse 8 of chapter 16. But I also have another reason for it. I want to highlight authorial intent. In our home, there's an ongoing debate. I hope my wife can hear me in the back. There's an ongoing debate, and I'm right. It's the only one I'm ever right about. C.S. Lewis published the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a publication order, and it begins with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Now, publishers have perverted that for you. All right? They have labeled the magician's nephew as the first book. Do not read the Chronicles of Narnia with the magician's nephew as the first book. Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first book. Prince Caspian is the second book. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third book, because that's how C.S. Lewis published them. You're probably going to get an email from Megan in just a moment saying C.S. Lewis did not think that that was the best way to read it. But that's how he published it. There's this ongoing debate. How the author tells the story. That is what we need to look to when we're trying to reconcile this question. How does Mark tell the story? And just look again at verse 8 of chapter 16. They went out. And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As we highlighted last week, astonishment, fear, silence, all of these are normal to Mark's gospel. Faith, fear or faith. And so there's a bit of an irony. Finally, people are told to go out into all the world and to say something about what they just saw. But in Mark's gospel, he holds them back and says they were afraid and they didn't say anything to anyone because Mark is trying to force a question upon a thoughtful reader. Will you be like these people or will you have faith, fear or faith? 
So when we look at the entirety of Mark's project and end with that question, we realize that Mark has constructed a masterpiece for us. How will you respond? The question also for us is, then why do English publishers keep putting this in my Bible? I'm going to be really frank and honest with you. Because they want you to buy their Bibles. It is a complete marketing scheme. Would you go and buy Bibles where there were large portions of text that you had always thought to be there gone? No. And what would bloggers do in, in the age of social media with Twitter and Instagram and all of these different things where people could get it and say, look, Crossway cut out a whole section of the Bible. What would that do to their business? So they leave it in there and they put a bracket in there and they hope that you're going to have a pastor that's going to say something to you or that you're actually going to read the study Bible that you bought or that you're going to go get a commentary and pull it off the shelf. So which translation should you read? Brothers and sisters, we are blessed. ESV, NIV. KJV, NKJV, NLT, uh, the NRSV, the RSV, I mean the NLT. There, there are so many good translations of the Bible in the English language. If you want to know where there are discrepancies and how translators are wrestling with this when you can't read Greek and Hebrew, just get a couple translations of the Bible and read them side by side or go buy a parallel Bible and you'll begin to see the types of decisions that they make. You don't have to read Greek and Hebrew to do that. You can just read them side by side and notice the differences. Why is this here? Why isn't this here? And when you see those contradictions or what seem to be contradictions, get a good commentary off the shelf and do the hard work, the spade work of trying to drill in what is underneath the text here. With that, I want to close. And say, it has been a wonderful journey to study Mark's gospel. You can trust your Bible. Even when, and especially when, texts like this are confusing and not present. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. Lord, I pray that you would help these, my friends, tonight. I pray that you would help me to have a greater love for your word. In comparison to what we give our time to, we give so little attention to the words of Scripture. We are tossed back and forth by all that life throws at us, and we often wonder why. It's often because we're not spending enough time saturating our minds in your word. And it was so good to hear our brother Dave to share Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture of how you had used the text to change his life. Father, may that be a, a pattern and an example for all of us. It is the text that changes lives. So we pray, perhaps even among us this evening, are people who will grow to be textual scholars that can help us grow in our confidence and trustworthiness of the Bible. We pray, Father, for those who might point to passages like this and undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to read books like the one Dan gave out earlier, Why Trust the Bible?, or books like Peter Williams' book, Can I Trust the Bible? So that we might have more compelling answer, answers than, well, because. Father, we pray that we would meet them in their skepticism with the words of Scripture because it is the words of life that change hearts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us a close attention to your word on Sunday mornings in particular. Keep us faithful, and Father, keep any person who preaches that text 
faithful. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.